Well, how's everyone doing? Y'all having a great morning? Well, you've had plenty, plenty of opportunities to change it to that already, and we're just going to continue. Holy Spirit, right now we open our hearts even further. We open our arms to receive from you this morning. We thank you for your presence that's already in this place. But just because we feel it now, we recognize you were already with us before we set foot in here. Because you never leave us. You never forsake us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are in this place. And you're opening our eyes. You're opening our hearts. You're doing work that no man can do. And we thank you for it. We open up. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Robin, I forgot to shut the security off. Can you do that so it doesn't click all service? Thank you. Well, last week, we started in a new series called Foundation. And uh, we were starting from the story that Jesus had in Matthew chapter 7 that says, these words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life. And I like that, how he points it out, because there's so much of, of Christianity, we're not talking about the world, we're talking about Christians here, that use God as an addition to what they already had. But he says that's not how it goes. He says it's not homeowner improvements to your standard of living. A lot of people come to God for what they can get from him, but if you go to God for God, man, he'll shoot things through your life that you never even expected. And he says they're foundational words, words to build a life on. And so we said last week that life can happen to you or it can happen through you. So what's the difference? Well, one is reactive and acceptant of what comes. And the majority of society finds themselves in this position. Whatever the day brings, they're constantly in a reaction mode to it. But you know that Christians were not meant to be thermometers? We're not to gauge our day based upon what's going on around us. Christians are called to be thermostats. You get to set the tone of your life. You get to set the temperature. If things are getting a little too hot, why don't you let a little bit of the Holy Spirit in there to straighten them, some things out and set them out. And so when life happens to you, you find yourself constantly reacting to what's going on around you or you get in a lot of people's position, they've given up in life and they're just acceptant. Well, I guess it's just something I'll have to deal with today. You never are in that position. And religion has lied to us. And they say, oh, God is sovereign, and whatever ha he, he wants will just happen in your life, so be acceptant of what's going on. Actually, he said, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, you choose life. Yes, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and he, he, he can control everything, but yet, he said, all authority has been given unto me, now you go. And so he's put the power back in our hand. So if one is reactive, the other one is proactive. And you get to choose the tone of your day, the tone of your month, the tone of your life every time you get up in the morning. And not only is it proactive saying, this is how my day is going to be, it's going to be resistant to those things that are in the opposite of how you were being proactive. You get to be resistive. If it's not good, it's not God, don't let it in your door. I like how the verse in Revelation says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone opens up the door, I'll come in and we'll have a feast together. You know, there's other things knocking at your door too. 
And you can be like, nope, that ain't coming in my house. Nope, I don't accept that delivery. Send it back to DHL. Sorry, that's just a... An inside joke with Robin and I. I've been getting these constant calls several times a day. It starts off, hello, this is DHL. We have a Chinese language message for you. And then it switched to Chinese. I'm like, and what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> Anybody been there with telemarketers? But Jesus went on to say, he said, if. And I told you, there's so many conditional statements throughout the Bible. If. Meaning they're not just automatically going to happen. If you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock, the rain poured down, the river flooded, the tornado hit, we can just say whatever situation life has thrown at you. But nothing moved that house. It was fixed on the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies, and you don't work them into your life, you're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on a sandy beach. And when the storm rolled up in and the waves came up, the house collapsed like a house of cards. Now Jesus is contrasting two groups of people. And whenever I've heard this, mess, this story preached, it's always this is how Christians are and this is how the world is. That's not what Jesus is actually contrasting here. He's contrasting believers. There's two groups of believers. There's those who take what Jesus says and use it, apply it, and walk in it. And then in verse 26 here, it points out the other side. You can know the word, you can talk about the word, be well versed in it, but never actually use the word. And those are the two groups that Jesus is contrasting. And he says one is a firm foundation that whatever life throws at you, you remain firm. And the other, he calls sand. And last time I checked, sand wasn't a very good foundation to put a house on. And so we told you that when it comes to the foundations of our lives, there are three things that we usually have shaped how we have grown up and what we have our decision-making process based upon. And number one is family and culture. Your family is the first one who gets to influence you. They got you when you were a baby, and they've been programming you ever since. And sometimes that's been good. Sometimes that's not so good. And I think all parents start out with the best of intentions, but we have to understand God knows higher than we do. Also in that same category is culture. Whether you realize it or not, culture has been programming you all your life. You live differently than someone did 500 years ago because you do not live in the same culture. You do not live in the same time frame. You don't have the same amenities or lack of amenities available to you. Someone who grew up during the Great Depression thinks differently than someone who grew up, grew up during the dot-com bust or boom. One grew up with lack, one grew up with surplus. Those form different ideas within our minds and how we react to things. And then there's also generational cultural. We're all, uh, whatever age we are, we've been influenced by different events and different things. 
The second thing is our environment. What is our school backgrounds? What is our educational backgrounds? You know, what, what, what other things have formed us? And then the last one is situational events. Did you grow up with a happy childhood? Did you grow up with a horrible childhood? Was there divorce? Was there trauma? Did you have a good family unit? These things all play into our, how we've been raised and what our decision-making process is. But regardless of how good or how bad those three pillars were, everyone is in this position of having shattered stones in their lives. Because anything that is not God is a sinking foundation. So whatever your, your background is, I love that Jesus, the first message he ever preached, he's just been launched into his ministry, he's just been filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gets up in the middle of the temple and he tells everybody what his mission, his manifesto is. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 61, which says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now I have to ask, what is good news to the poor? You don't have to be poor no more. You grew up in an environmental and a situational and a family influence just because your family was doesn't mean you need to be anymore. And so Jesus preaches good news to the poor. And it says he sent me to comfort the brokenhearted. And I think a lot of people think it's like, oh, they're there, it's okay. Oh, they were so mean to you. That's not comfort. Comfort is your heart was broken, God can fix it. And to proclaim that the captives will be released and the prisoners will be freed. So many live in a prison of their own creation and God is saying, I've taken the shackles, I've broken them, I've smashed the locks, the door is open, walk out. He sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come. I love that. The word favor in the Old Testament is the equivalent of grace in the New He wants people to know you don't have to mourn anymore. Just because you felt like you were locked in this legalistic system, you don't have to be sad about it anymore. The grace of God has come to all. He says, to all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes. Maybe things have burnt down in your life. That's okay. He can take those ashes and make something beautiful out of them. A joyous blessing instead of mourning. Festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. Hallelujah. And why is he able to do all these things? Why is he able to take the pillars of of our lives and fix them? Because as Peter said, quoting the Old Testament, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. A cornerstone is the first stone that is laid in a foundation. You lay it straight, you lay it level, and it determines every other stone in the building is based off that one. If you have a bad cornerstone, you'll end up with a bad foundation throughout the rest. If it's crooked, your house is going to be crooked. If it's missing, well, that's even worse. And so Jesus was never meant to be an addition to our lives. 
He was the point of a new reevaluation that we take everything else off of the ground, we lay Jesus, and we build upon that. And anything that doesn't line up to what he has said is true, we get to toss out of the building. It's not meant for our foundation. You know, Paul said something very similar about this to the Philippians. He says, we put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. I like that. Paul's a little bit cocky sometimes. He's like, if anybody can boast, it'd be me. But he said, indeed, if others have reason for confidence their own, in their own efforts, I have even more. And he goes on to say, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. <laughs> you know, what he just told you right there was the three foundations. He talked about his family. He talked about his education. He talked about his situation. He persecuted the church. But after he says his pedigree, he says, I once thought these things were valuable, but I now consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. I love that. When Paul looked back at the foundational pillars of his life, he said, these just won't do anymore. They're garbage. But if you've discarded some things in your life, that's okay. God will fill the space with his goodness, with his provision, with his mercy. Maybe you had broken relationships. God will bring you into good relationships. He'll mend things in your heart that you didn't even know were broken. And so what we want to talk to this morning is about mending stones because we all have broken stones in our lives. Some of us are just more willing to admit it than others. But when we talk about stones, we're basically using it as a metaphor for the heart. Now, Paul tells us that we're a three-part being. We are, we're a spirit man. We have a soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotions, and we live in a body. But what often isn't talked about, and we're not going to get in-depth with it, is the heart. And heart would be like your internal processing system. The parts of your spirit that you let have dominance will get programmed into your heart. The parts of your mind and your thought processes that you let rule you will get programmed into your heart. Now, the things that you let your body decide about or not decide about, they get programmed into your heart. And it makes the, it's the decision-making process. When a situation happens, you begin to respond with how your heart has been conditioned. The thing I like about the heart is not stuck. It can always be reprogrammed. It's kind of like a computer program. If you find some bad lines of code, you delete them and you rewrite them. But most of us are unwilling to look at how we have programmed our heart. And so we found ourselves with broken hearts or broken stones that need to be mended. And God is always more than willing to work with us to mend those. But a lot of people would think that when God mends a heart, he does something along this line. 
He stitches it back together. He adds some patches, and he slaps a Band-Aid on it. But when I look at that, all I see is something that is still broken that we've tried to piece back together. And that's not what God says he would do. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, he said, I'll give you a new heart. He doesn't give you the broken, tattered thing that's been stitched loosely back together. He gives you a new one. And I'll give you a new spirit, put a new spirit in you, and I'll take out the stony, stubborn heart. And sometimes you just got to preach to yourself a little bit. My goodness, I don't need to be stubborn and stony. He says, I will give you a tender, responsive heart. You know, you can, t- can condition yourself not to respond to God and to His Word. Just as much, though, you can condition yourself to be responsive to what he says and what the word has actually said. And he said, I'll put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees. You've been born again and filled with the Holy Spirit. He's done that very thing. He's downloaded his spirit into you. And you can follow him because what the Holy Spirit's job is to lead. Now, if you hire a guide to take you through a forest, where's the best place to be? With the guide. (laughs) But a lot of us like to, you know, run way out ahead and we're taking off things and before we know it, where's the guide and I'm lost? The thing is, he's never lost. He always knows where you are. He knows how to get you. And so Paul said, or Jesus said that these words are not incidental additions to our lives. They're not homeowner improvements to your standard of living. They are foundational words, words to build a life on. Now, when we talk about the words of God, we can talk about it in two different ways. We can talk about it from, from being the written word of God or the spoken word of God. You have to understand that Matthew chapter 7 started orally. It was spoken out as inspired unction from God through Jesus to the crowd that he was in. And then it was written down for our benefit and for our example. But just because it's gone from spoken form into written form makes it no less inspired or no less powerful. And so God can speak a word to your heart just as much today as he spoke a word to Jesus' heart. And you can write it down in your journal, you can put it up on your fridge, and it can be just as much word as the word of God. But the thing is, the spoken word of God will never violate the written word of God. And I've heard some people tell me some really stupid things to say, oh, this is what God told me. And I was like, you can't because that's not what the word says and he can't violate his own inspiration. Now, it doesn't always make sense to your head, I had a friend who was ministering and there was like, he said there was like 10 people there and he just kept having this word pop up in, the, in his heart that God hates mummies and daddies. And he kept saying to himself, he's like, that's not true. And the Holy Spirit said, you just gotta trust me. And so he said, is there someone going through a situation right now? I feel like God has a word for you. And this, this young girl came up and he said, God hates mummies and daddies. And she just broke down and burst into tears. And he found out that her uncle had been abusing her for years by telling her we're gonna go play the game of mummies and daddies. 
So it doesn't always have to make sense to your head, but you follow the Holy Spirit and he can lead you to set people free. For no word from God shall be void of power. And he said in Isaiah, so will the words that come out of my mouth will not come back empty-handed. They will do the work I sent them to do and they will complete the assignment that I gave them. So in whatever form it comes, whether it's a word from God through the Spirit or whether it's a word that you've recognized in his, in his written word, they are powerful and they have power in them to accomplish what he sent them to do. And so the first step when God is mending the stones of our hearts is that he always leads with love. God never leads with condemnation. God never leads with shame. Romans 8 said, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You realize that there's ways that you can talk to people that free them rather than condemn them? And depending on how you approach a situation, people will either open their hearts or close their hearts to you. And religion has spent years and years doing the baseball bat approach. Maybe if I hit you over the head enough, you'll open up your heart and change. And God's saying, I told you, I am love. And so whenever God approaches the stones of our heart, he always leads love first. And so I want to read this morning out of John chapter 4. If you're following in your Bibles with me, you can turn over to there. And we have a great story. It's one of, the, one of uh, the famous interactions that Jesus had. And it starts like this in John 4, 1. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples did. And just a side note that has nothing to do with the message, but I thought was enlightening to me, you'll recognize that Jesus often empowered others. And religion likes to see it as, well, Jesus could do that, and then they ignore the parts where he sent out his disciples and they did the same works. They healed the sick, opened blind eyes. And here, Jesus wasn't the one actually baptizing them. He empowered his disciples to do it, which lines up with what he said in John. He says, greater works than I have done will you do because I'm going to the Father. Amen. What was he trying to say? I'm empowering you to do what I've done and more. Yeah. So stop waiting for Jesus to show up and do it. Use what Jesus gave you. Right. End of side note. And so in verse 3, he says, so he left Judea, which is in the north, or in the south, and he's returning to Galilee, which is in the north. And it says he had to go through Samaria on the way. And I think it's kind of funny, the wording. He had to go through Samaria. And you need to know, for the context of the story, is no Jew had to go through Samaria. In fact, no Jew wanted to ever go through Samaria. If you were going north to south, Samaria is in the middle. And a Jew would plan their trip with extra time to go around Samaria. Because they considered Samaritans the worst of the worst. 
They were unclean, half-breed Jews that had been bred with, the, with the, the, the Babylonians and the Persians, and they were just no longer considered Jews. And so a good Jew never had to go through Samaria. And so I think the word is more like Jesus chose to go through Samaria. He was not on a timeline. He was not crushed like we need to do this because if we don't get there, we won't be on time. No, Jesus' schedule didn't work that way. Jesus chose to go through Samaria. And eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar and near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired from a long walk, and he sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Now, there's interesting things that we should point out about this story is Jesus was tired and he was weary. Those are two different things. Tired was referring to his physical state. Weary was having to do with his emotional and mental state. Jesus had had enough of the travel. He'd had enough of what was going on around him at that point. I, liked to, to, I loved that fact that Jesus got just as tired physically and emotionally and mental as we did because he was just like us and it tells us that what he did he did as a man empowered by God and that's exactly how we do it we are human empowered by father God and so he's sitting tired and weary and it's about noon so it's right in right turning to afternoon which is the hot time of the day and soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. So, what you need to know about water drawing is that noontime is not when you do it. You do it in the morning so that you can have water for your activities you need to do throughout the day, whether you're needing to mix it in your flour and making bread, whether you need to mix your dye with it if you're dyeing clothes, whether you're cleaning the laundry, whatever it is, you do it in the first part of the day as the sun is coming up because that's when it's cool. You're lugging heavy water pots. That's when the society that they lived in would draw their water. So it tells us that this woman is drawing her water at noontime, which tells us some very important things about her. She was a social outcast. She was drawing her water at noontime because everyone else was done, which tells us she was either, one, not allowed to be with the rest of them, or two, was choosing to not be with the rest of them because of how they treat her. This is the time of day when the lepers would come and get their wa water. This is the time of day where people who had been declared unclean by the Jewish priests would come to get their water. This is not the time for the prestigious people of the town. So it tells us her social standing. And so Jesus says to her, please give me a drink. And it says he was alone at this time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. And the woman was surprised. For Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. So Jesus is already crossing cultural and societal norms in this situation. He's already going beyond what was normally allowed for a Jew. And the woman was surprised. 
which tells us that no one else has done this for her before. What she was expecting was someone to be silent, ignore her, pretend she's not there. And so she's surprised, and she said to Jesus, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, why are you asking me for a drink? God will put himself in situations in our lives that we don't feel like anyone should be there. And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you. Jesus, you're telling me that the unclean one, the unacceptable one, the one nobody wants to have anything to do with, you have a gift from God for them? How do you view the lowest of society? That'll tell you the true status of your heart. And he says, for who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. So Jesus is immediately taking the conversation to a different level. He said, give me a drink, natural. If you knew who you were talking to, I'd give you living water. He's trying to reveal something spiritual to her. But she goes right over her head. She says, but sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? So one, she doesn't trust that Jesus has the ability. You know, a lot of people get in that situation when we read things that God has promised to us. We're like, oh yeah, that sounds great. But what we're really saying is, I don't believe it'll ever happen for me. We don't trust in God's ability. And then she takes it even deeper. And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob? Er, stop for a second. The highest pillars of their society was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so immediately she's saying to him, do you think you're better, bigger, stronger, more able than the one who gave us this well? And how can you offer better than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus replied to her and said, Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink of the water I will give will never be thirsty again because it is a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And Jesus is saying, if you would stop looking at the natural things, I'd be able to pour some spiritual things into you, things that will begin to bubble and agitate and move. And you know what happens when water gets to begin to be stirred? It begins to clean things. It begins to change things. You just look at the rocks that are at the bottom of a river that's been moving. It begins to smooth them. It begins to change them. It takes off the harsh edges. It begins to the smooth edges. It takes things like the, the Colorado River and digs a huge trench out of them. And now people go all from all over the world to see this big hole in the ground. But it's beautiful. It is really beautiful. The colors and the hues that you see as the sun hits across that Grand Canyon. Water that's moving changes things. And it says, the water I give you will begin to bubble 
from within, giving them eternal life. And the words he used there is ionos zoe, which means God quality and God condition continually. And so the woman is thinking for a moment, and Jesus is thinking, I want to transform you every day from now and throughout eternity. God doesn't think in simple, short, finite moments. He thinks in infinite moments. Please, sir, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come back here to get water. Now, this is interesting, because she's still thinking from her societal hurts. I won't have to come back here anymore. I won't have to worry about avoiding these people. Offenses and hurts will lead you to try and avoid people and avoid situations. God is not into having you avoid things. He's having to see things repaired, hurts healed, and relationships restored. And so she's thinking, if you give me this living water, I don't have to come here. And so Jesus wants to take this deeper. He's not about avoiding the problem. He's about solving it. And so he points out what it is in her life that's caused this grief. Go and get your husband, the Jesus told her. And she said, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. Kind of feel like she's like on the level of Larry King. I think he just decided he's married, uh, divorcing his sixth wife. And so this tells us something important about this woman. She doesn't know how to manage relationships. She's gone through five of them. She's probably a poor decision maker. She doesn't know how to choose a mate. And so she's been through all the hurts. Divorces are hurtful. Now, if you think that is now, you have to understand the society in which she was living. Five wasn't acceptable. One wasn't acceptable. Most people viewed you as, we should just stone you because you're a pariah to our society. And so she's not gone through it once, she's gone through it five times. And that's why Jesus is there. He wants to heal those broken stones in her life. And he says, you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Now, you notice in this, Jesus never said, for shame, you've had five husbands and you're living with someone you're not married to. That had nothing to do with Jesus' tone. Jesus is still leading with love. And the woman immediately says, sir, you must be a prophet. Why? Because he just told her something that someone from, not from that region shouldn't know. But really what was going on here is when your wounds are exposed, you begin to recoil. You ever notice that when you've got like a cut or a slice, you try to protect it, you try to pull it back, but what's really needed is you to clean the wound, to dress it, and to put it into position where it can be healed. This woman was recoiling by trying to redirect the conversation and so she says, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that the Jerusalem is the only place to worship? Well, we Samaritans claim that it's here on Mount Gerizim, where our ancestors worshipped. 
So she tries to recoil and redirect. And we do the same thing when God begins to expose the wounded parts of our hearts. We begin to recoil and redirect. And God is saying, no, just trust me. Just trust me. I'm better at binding wounds than you are. And he says this, believe me, dear woman, (laughs) the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. And actually, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. (laughs) Well, we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. Now, he wasn't trying to say that to her to elevate the way the Jews had done things. He was telling them, it comes through the Jews and that's where I came from. And he said, but the time is coming and indeed it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking to those who will worship him that way. For the Spirit of God, for God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so the woman says, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. So basically we're saying, when the Messiah gets here, I'll believe him. And so Jesus says, I am the Messiah. Conversation ends. but not for a negative reason. The woman just said, I'll believe the Messiah. And Jesus said, that's who I am. And she realized, I believe. Just then his disciples came back and they were shocked, just as much as shocked as she was at the beginning of the conversation, to find him talking to a woman. But none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? And why are you talking to her? You know, people don't need to understand your reasons for reaching out. And oftentimes they won't. But God just might be able to use your words in your hands to heal some wounds. And while they're surprised and shocked and too afraid to ask, The woman who now believes says, the woman left her water jar beside the well, meaning she forgot why she came out there to even begin with, and ran back to the village telling everyone. Avoiding society at noontime. Running back to tell them. The offense the hurt, the shame, the wounded stones have been mended because Jesus was willing to step where others wouldn't. And this is what she said, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And so the people came streaming from the village to see him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. And they said, did did someone bring him food while we were gone? Did we just waste a trip into a Samaritan village that we didn't want to even go in to begin with? (laughs) That's what they were saying. We need to understand these are people. 
And we read the text as though it was written and, and acted out by people. And Jesus said this, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. So Jesus goes from, I'm tired, I'm emotionally spent, to that when he reached out to others, he was charged up and ready to go. I don't need the food anymore. I've got sustenance and nourishment that you don't know anything about. When I walk in the will of my Father, I'm charged up. And God takes pleasure in helping people because it charges him up. Oh, like, like father, like son. When we open our hearts to help others and heal the wounds of their hearts, you'll find yourself with a new step. You can sing the song like we did this morning, I'm going to see a victory. And allow yourself to be stirred up. And while you're seeing victory, you can lead others into victory. But love always leads God to jump over our boundaries. But we all need to have a woman at the well moment where we say, I believe God. Clean the wound. Bind it up. Let it heal. Because what happens to wounds when we hide them and don't treat them? They fester. They become infected. They become smelly. They become gross. And then we wonder why some people are the way they are God's saying, I can clean that infection off. I can make that wound better than new because I'm not just stitching your heart back together. I'm not patching it. I'm not giving it a Band-Aid. I'm making it new. And so this morning, I want to pray with you. Why don't you stand up with me? And I want you to just go ahead and just lay hands on yourself and pray this prayer with me. Father, I thank you that you mend hearts. I ask that you expose my wounds that they might be healed. I look to you, the great physician. I know you can do a work that I can't do. So give me courage to let go of these wounds. Let go of this heartache to let go of the offense and let it be mended better than new. Maybe you're watching us this morning via the internet and you haven't had the ultimate heart change. And that happens when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And he didn't make it hard. All he said is just open up your heart, believe, and confess. And so we'd love to pray with you right now. Why don't you pray with us, church? Father, I received Jesus. I thank you that he has washed me. White as snow. And I declare him as my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that with us this morning, I would love for you to get in contact with us so that we can get you hooked up with a good church in your area and get some resources into your hands. But everyone here, God loves you so much. He's not into hurting your wounds worse. He's into healing them. And you are loved and accepted by the Father. You guys are all blessed. 
Have a wonderful week. Let's have some, some good conversations.